Well, church, as you're having a seat, if you will, grab your Bibles or your scripture journal. Excuse me, if you're new with us and you don't have a scripture journal, we've got some on that black table back there. Feel free to grab one of those. It is a ESV scripture journal. One side of the, uh, of the book has the ESV translation of the book of the Ephesians. The other side is a bunch of blank pages where you get to just take notes and engage the text of scripture uh, with us as we preach through um, Ephesians together. And so... We're thrilled that you're here with us. Welcome to Providence North. My name's Sean. If you're new with us, I want to say kind of our standard way of teaching through the scriptures is to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. We feel like it's the most helpful way for us as a church to center, as we sang about it, center our lives on the goodness of God and Jesus. And so we do that through, um, rather than just grabbing topics that are really helpful, um, we just say, Hey, as we walk through the text of the Bible that God has given to us as his word, uh, we will encounter a lot of different things that will begin to lay our lives on top of that, which is his uh, good word to us. And so that's what we're doing through the book of Ephesians. So we're glad you're with us. And so uh, if you don't have one of those, grab a book. It's our gift to you to keep and have and take notes in. I'm going to read Ephesians. Uh, We find ourselves beginning chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10. This is a heavy one, so we're just going to jump right into it. I think maybe, I guess President's Day is like a really exciting holiday. Everyone left. They're like, I don't want to read Ephesians 2. There's some bad news in the beginning of that. I'm out of here. But those of you that came, I'm glad you're here. You're stuck, so you can't get up now. Get ready. Put your seatbelts on. Here we go. It's bad news followed by incredibly glorious good news. Here we go. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Paul jumps right in. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. This is a gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. For good works. Which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. There is a lot in there. These are... um, Mountains and valleys, if you will. You kind of read the the very worst of all of humanity, and then you get to the very best of who God is and who we are in Him. Um, I don't know if any of you uh, this was what was this? Maybe in the in the late '90s, watched Lost. Any Lost fans out there? Yeah, three of us. Cool. The rest of you maybe won't get this. Uh, it's not exactly related to Lost, but one of the most interesting characters was a guy named John Locke. Any remember John Locke? He's sort of that. He's the strange guy, right? Well, throughout Lost, there's all these different storylines with this guy, John Locke. And one of, the, one of the more interesting ones was he, 
spoiler alert, he gets off the island and then eventually comes back and he has like a different name and there's all these flashbacks with him, right? And one of the names that he's given, one of his aliases is Jeremy Bentham. Anyone familiar with the name Jeremy Bentham? Anyone heard that name? You've heard of Jeremy Bentham? This, isn't this strange? Yeah. So Jeremy Bentham, a little bit about Jeremy Bentham, okay? So Jeremy Bentham was born in 1748. He was a philosopher, among other things, this very eccentric man. He was considered to be the founder of this philosophical idea of utilitarianism. It's like the great happiness principle, right? He's this really quirky man, okay? And so this something very interesting about the life of Jeremy Bentham is he was incredibly wealthy. Uh, he was a multi-multi-millionaire uh, by today's standards, maybe even a billionaire from back then. But he left his fortune to a London hospital to further medicine, to further study, to further uh, his philosophical ideas. But he had one caveat in his will, right? If you're a super rich guy, you get to make some really crazy requests with what they do with your money when you're gone. So this was part of his sort of strange sense of humor and his worldview. But Jeremy Bentham, because he gave all of his money to this London hospital, uh, in his will said, you can keep this money for the hospital so long as I am present at every board meeting following uh, even my death. So post-mortem. So Jeremy Bentham's skeleton can, is on display still today in some museum, and they put a wax head, they mummified, sorry children, his head, it's sitting at his feet, very strange. He's in this 1700s garb, and he's got this wax, strange, like, house of wax museum head, and he's in this cabinet, and you open it up, and for reportedly for 100 years, Jeremy Bentham, at the board meetings of this London hospital, you should Google this when you get home. He, roll, you can see a picture of him. I almost showed a picture, but it's too creepy. Roll him into the, the head of the table where he would sit, his body would sit, and they would conduct their business, and then at the end they would have uh, voting, right? And there he was, Jeremy Bentham, and this line was always quoted when he was sitting there uh, after the vote was taken. Mr. Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. A hundred years. There's pictures of him of like it what looks like maybe interns or something carrying this chair, the skeleton. It's just like crazy, right? Present. Mr. Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. This was a sort of a joke of his philosophy, right? He just kept living on, right? Money can buy you some pretty strange things. Why do I tell you that silly story? Today we come to this passage uh, that the Bible describes you and I in a very similar way. Uh, Paul describes you and I in our spiritual state outside of Jesus as present but not voting. We're walking around, we're drug around, we're there, but we're not there. We're sitting there, we're participating in the meeting, but there's no life in us as Paul describes us. We're present, but we're not voting until God intervenes and does something for us. It takes the intervention of God to bring us to life. Apart from Christ, we have no life. This is what Paul's describing to this church in Ephesus when he's describing to you and I. 
were in the room, but we were not participating because we were dead to the very things of God. We were dead to the ideas of God. We were dead to even wanting to have a relationship with God. We were antagonistic against him. We just, we didn't want anything to do with it. And so this is a wonderful passage, Ephesians chapter 2. It's a great passage for us to understand our spiritual estate outside of Christ. This gives us crystal clear idea of our spiritual estate outside of Christ and our estate with Christ. It juxtaposes both of these. So it's a great passage for believers in here, and it's also a great passage for non-believers in here. It's a wonderful summary of what it means to be a Christian. It's a wonderful summary of what it means to be a Christian. The subject of the first sentence is God. Verse 4. And the main verb, the main idea here is made alive. So God has made us alive. And this text tells us how that happens. It is a marvelous passage explaining what God has done for believers by his grace to make us alive. And so this passage, remember, as we're going through this book, it's linked to the previous ones. These aren't standing in isolation. So Paul is building on a foundation of ideas. And so this is especially linked with the end of our passage from last week, verses 19 and 20, where it describes God's mighty work in raising Jesus from the dead. He Paul describes the resurrection of Jesus and how he's in authority, how he will put his enemies at his feet, how Jesus is ruling and reigning, right? It's the same power now he's getting to that raises Jesus from the dead, that same power that brings life out of death is our power, is, is now ours in Christ. That's what he's getting at. He's linking these truths together. That power is what makes us alive spiritually. Right? So I want us to highlight some, some truths about God's work in bringing us to life. The first thing that we're going to see here that Paul spends some time that we might understand is he, bre- he begins with our cre- pre-Christian past. Meaning, who are we outside of Christ? And the picture is not pretty. Neither, neither, neither is the sound. Wow. i got to trim my beard back. Sorry, guys. Sorry, Eddie promised I would do that last week, and I didn't. So it's not good news for us. Apart from Christ, Paul says, verses 1 through 3, we are spiritually dead. Let me read it again in case you forgot these, these intense passages. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So who's he talking to? Verse 1, it says you. Now you might be a Bible student here, and you're like, well, Sean, uh, Paul's talking about the Gentiles here in the church in Ephesus, so it's not really me He's talking about these other people. So we're like, a lot of us like to try to find those, if you're like me, the loopholes. It's like, well, it's not technically me. It's Paul's addressing the Gentiles. But then he, he quickly just sort of debunks that idea of trying to get out of this estate of mankind. Because, and then he says in verse 3, all of us. Okay? And then he goes on, in case you wanted to kind of wiggle out of that one, he says, like the rest of mankind. You, all of us. 
and the rest of mankind. Paul covers everyone with these phrases. And so the Bible today is telling us that everyone, all of us, you can't escape from it. You can't escape this reality. You and I, outside of Christ, are spiritually dead. There's no life there. Now, Paul's not describing some degrading segment of society, these horrific people that do really bad things or some cannibalistic society. It's like those, these wicked people over here, they are without God. They're dead to spiritual things. He's, he's not painting that picture at all. He's talking about all of us, everyone. And so the, that's the biblical di diagnosis of our spiritual condition outside of Christ outside of Christ. Paul shows us who we were before Christ with three descriptions, and they're, like I said, not pretty. This concept, this idea doesn't sell a lot of books anymore, right? But Paul says this, we're dead, we're disobedient, and finally, if, it doesn't, if it, that doesn't sound really chipper enough for you, we're doomed. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Sounds nice, right? Dead, spiritually dead, he says. And then because of that, we're disobedient. We're, we're, we're following other influences other than our creator God. And then lastly, Paul says, and because of that, we're doomed. It says we're children of wrath. Wow. He says that's what's coming to us. So first, we're dead. Let's, let's examine why he's saying this. He's, and, and you may be thinking, wow. Sean, I'm not dead. Like, I drove here. I got dressed. It's like before Christ, I woke up. I got out of bed. I went to work. It's like even, how can he say that? I'm, not, I'm, I'm breathing and I'm living. What does he mean here? You can be alive and living, but you can be spiritually dead. This is what Paul is talking about. It's like the walking dead version of Christianity, right? It's like the, there's these two groups of people. Yes, they have a pulse in their life, but the things of God are dead to them. Because you cannot earn spiritual life. You cannot earn heaven on your own. You simply can't will yourself toward it. So this is our previous state before God intervened. It's alienation. Paul says it later in Ephesians 4. He's going to say, we were alienated from the life of God. To further drive home that point. That means that we were dead. We're cut off from the life of God. Alienated from it. Jesus uses this analogy in the Gospels when he talks about the vine and the branches. When you're cut off from the vine, when you're not, a, when you're not attached to it, you become disconnected, it says there's no life there. That the branches need to be connected into the vine. And when you're connected to the vine, Jesus is the life and he provides the life and sustenance for us. But when you're disconnected, when you're not connected to him, it's, it's dead branches. Jesus uses the same idea. And because of that sinful state, we're committing these trespasses, it says. Trespasses or acts of sin, verse 5. And so this is the comprehensive account of human evil that Paul is addressing here. We're dead. We're committing transgressions. We're in a sinful state. And thus, we are culpable. We are responsible for all that we've done against the living God. Because of our transgressions and sin, because we are rebelling against him. This illustration Jesus uses in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. He's rebelling against the father. 
And he eventually finds himself eating with the pigs. He gets to the end of himself. He squanders the inheritance and the life that his father gives to him. And when he finally comes to the end of himself and comes crawling back to his father, his forgiving and gracious father says these words, My son was dead, but now he's alive. He was dead, but now he's alive. This church is the complete opposite of what the world tells us about ourselves as human nature. The world tells us that we're basically good. If you missed it last week, I sang a country song about that. It was terrible. I forgot the melody halfway through. I kind of lost it. But I sang it. I tried. Um, but the world tells us we're, just, we're basically kind of good people. And it's like if you, if you really try hard enough, you really pick yourself up by the bootstraps enough, you can climb every rainbow, right? You can conquer the skies. You can, you can all, all those like really helpful things that used to be on those 90s inspiration posters that have a mountain scene and then something that makes you feel like, yeah, I can do this. It's like the world just says you're basically, you can do it yourself if you work and try hard enough. The Bible paints a very different picture. The Bible says, don't follow your heart. It's wicked and will lead you actually to death and separation from God. It's leading you in the wrong direction. What the Bible teaches is you need a new heart. You need a, you need a brand new heart that only God can give you. And so you turn from what you think is the best way to what God says is the right and good and true way. And in doing that, you find the grace and mercy that we so desperately need. God blows up our self-centered view of reality. And he's allowed to do that because he's God. And this is what Paul is reminding us of here, the very beginning of Ephesians. He's setting the groundwork. He's giving us the bad news to get to the very good news. So you might ask yourself this. This is a common question. You're sitting out there. Maybe you're thinking that right now. Well, geez, that's, that's really harsh. Well, I know a lot of people that aren't believers, and they do really great things. They do tremendous things. They, they're like humanitarians. They, they love people. In fact, some of them love people more than some of my Christian friends. Like, how does that work out? How do you reconcile that reality? This is the reality of it. It's because um, all of us are image bearers of God. We're created in the image of God. And so we can do incredible things. We can make incredible music. We can be fantastic at sports. We can be really nice and kind and generous to others, even outside of Christ. We can start businesses. We can start nonprofits. We can make money. We can do humanitarian work. But the idea here is that all the things that we muster and do can never earn us a connectedness to the vine. It can never earn us spiritual life. The image of God has been distorted by sin. It has not been destroyed by sin. So therefore, all of us as God's people, as image bearers of God, have within us the ability to walk in goodness and kindness and to pour out goodness and kindness on those whom we love. We experience love. We experience kindness. But it's not the kind that will... that that will earn you and win you and sway you into the family of God. The image of God has been distorted, not destroyed. We can never, therefore, present ourselves blameless before a holy and just God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 could not be any clearer. 
It's a sad predicament. We aren't morally good. We aren't neutral. We aren't mostly dead. Right? We need a miracle that only God can perform. Second thing we see, we're disobedient. Verses 2 and 3. Paul goes on to describe how we disobeyed God. Like our first parents, instead of following God, we followed three evil forces. It gets creepy here, okay? We followed the world. He says we followed the course of the world, meaning those of us before Christ were just controlled by the world's influences. What the world tells of us, what the world values, what the world props up as good and right and true, we are just controlled by that wind of doctrine. We fall in line with it, and we want to live that out to please the world around us. We are controlled by the course of the world, Paul tells us. And that still happens today. That's something we, even as believers, struggle with. We have assumed the attitudes, habits, lifestyles, and all of those things in the current culture and days that we find ourselves in. This is what we did before Christ. And this is what we currently struggle with even in Christ. Paul describes it this way in 2 Timothy. This is not good news. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, Without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. <sighs> Secondly, Paul says that, we're, that we followed the enemy, or Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians, the new, this New Testament letter that Paul pens, speaks more about principalities and powers than any other New Testament letter. It draws attention to the power behind them, which is Satan, right? So Paul is telling us before Christ, you and I, our state before Christ, is telling us <coughs> that the ruler of the air, the great enemy, is the one influencing us to these disobedient acts against God. And so you might be thinking here, well, geez, I thought Satan was defeated, right? I thought it was taken care of. He was defeated. Um, he was defeated at the cross, Colossians. I'll tell you a lot about that. But he does not surrender without a struggle. It's like this idea of a rebel militia. He's still fighting though the war is over. He's still fighting though the war is over. Third, it says, we followed our sinful desires, the passions of the flesh, desires of the body and mind. Paul adds that we were slaves to these passions, lusts of our fallen nature, sinful nature. And these passions are described in Galatians, in fact, by Paul again. And what are these? Anger, sexual sin, idolatry, jealousy, rivalries, drunkenness. Jeremiah describes it this way. The heart of a man is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is not a great estate for us. Now, does Paul get carried away here? We kind of read this. You're like, dude, Sean, this is like hellfire brimstone type stuff here. It's like... I. I just wanted a quick pick-me-up. I want to go about my way. Like, what's going on here? Is he, like, blowing this way out of proportion? Is, this, is our condition really this bad? The scriptures say, yeah, that's us outside of Christ. While, the human, while us as humans bear the image of God, sin has not destroyed it, but it's radically depraved it. And we're unable on our own to please him and create and have this salvation with him, to be connected with him on our own. 
Theologically, what Paul is doing is describing total depravity. All aspects of our being have been infected with this deadly disease of sin. That's why Paul is painting a pervasive nature of it. So he's describing our total inability. We're not morally capable of responding to God apart from God's grace. The fact is, we didn't even want to. We didn't want God on our own. We need something from above to move our unmoving hearts. We needed God's grace. And the result of all of this that he says, it says, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The result of all this sin is God's justice judgment on the acts we commit against him. This is not God throwing a fit. This is why the Apostle Paul is just spelling this out. God isn't throwing a fit. He's not being mean. He's not being cold. This is his just and appropriate response to all that we have lived and acted in. This is, this is his just and appropriate response. And so here's the choices of the scriptures. It's either this sin, this rebellion that we have, will either be punished on the back of Jesus, his atoning sacrifice on the cross, or it will be given to us that we do deserve outside of Christ. That's why, church, we sing about Jesus. We sing about center our lives on you, Jesus. We sing about his goodness. We sing about the victory that we have in Christ, not our own personal victories, because the Bible spells out exactly what the reality of us outside of Christ is. And so what it does is it swells us to worship Jesus more fully because of all the good that he has done in our place and the grace that he poured out onto us. Not the work of ourselves, but the work of Christ in the cross. Jesus bore our wrath that we had coming to us. He drank the cup to the very last, he says in the garden. To the very last drop, and then he says, it is finished. He absorbed it all for his people. And so we cry out to Jesus as our great substitute. Now, in light of this reality of our sin, we don't like talking about this. It's uncomfortable to even stand up here and talk about it, Right? But in light of this, in light of this reality, what it does is it gives us a realistic picture of humanity. Now, Paul transitions from our attention to depravity in order to magnify, put a giant spotlight to put, to write it in the clouds, the magnificent mercy and grace of God in saving us. It's like a black backdrop on a beautiful diamond, and you see all the implications, and a light shines on it where you thought it was darkness, but there is great, great hope because of Christ. And here we have two of the sweetest words in the entire Bible, but God. We heard all that stuff, and it was hard to read. It was hard to digest. It was hard to, it was hard to really think, is that really me? And then Paul says, but God. That's our biography. But God. Those are wonderful, hope-filled words. We just saw who we were, and we need the intervention of God. And so it says, but God, God's gracious initiative and sovereign action stands in wonderful contrast to verses 1 through 3. Do we deserve this rescue? No. 
Did we deserve this grace and mercy? No. And so the second thing we hear, see here that Paul points out is first, we're dead in our trespasses and sin, but secondly, with Christ, we are made alive. Praise God. Apart from him, we're dead, but in, with Christ, we're alive. It says, but God. Notice the descriptions of goodness that he gives to us. As you walk through this, he says he's rich in mercy, verse 4. The Old Testament even describes God as abounding in mercy, Psalm 103. That he delights in mercy in Micah. The word Hebrew, the word in Hebrew is, is kesad, which refers to God's loyal love. His pursuing love for us. Verse 4, his great love. Paul writes, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5. In that reality that we found ourselves in. While we were still there, Christ died for us. That's how great his love is. Verses 5 and 8, it talks about his grace, that we were being made alive, that we were dead. But all of this is grace, the undeserving favor of God. Twelve times this word is mentioned in Ephesians. Grace. In chapter 1, Paul says that our salvation is to the praise of his glorious grace. Zach read it earlier. To the praise of his glorious grace. He says things like this. The immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness for all of eternity, he says. We will be recipients of this grace. We will actually, because of all that Jesus has done and showered down upon us, we will display the infinite riches of grace and kindness that Jesus gave to his people. We get to display that. We get to put that on display from now and forever in glory. Verse 5, God made us alive together with Christ. That's the main verb which governs this whole paragraph made us alive. Like Jesus who came by Lazarus' tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. That's Christianity. It's not adherence to moral law. It's about what was once dead and was then made alive by the call of Christ, calling us forth, giving us new life by his very words. It's about life. And then in both verses 5 and 8, it says, by grace you have been saved. And to capture what Paul is saying in this text, it's like, um, I heard one commentator say it this way, it's, it's like you have been saved, past tense, you are being saved, present tense, and you will be saved, future tense. It's total, it's full, it's final, it's from eternity past to eternity future because of Christ, you are being saved, you have been saved, and you will be saved. Because of the grace of God. The grace of God. I like reading older stories about um, kind of our forefathers in the faith. And one of, one of uh, the guys uh, that some of you may have heard, his name is George Whitfield. And he is this, one of the most prominent preachers um, in the 1700s, and it's said that he preached over 18,000 sermons in his lifetime to over 10 million people. This just almost legendary type figure, uh, 
before microphones. He would fill what would be almost stadium-like settings, and he was known for just his ability to project his voice that those could just, people would hear the gospel and respond to Christ. And there's a story that goes like this. He writes it in one of his journals that someone, uh, it was during the time of the Great Awakening, and he tells the story a man came to hear him in order to attack him because he was so antagonistic against the gospel and what he was preaching about Jesus making sinners become righteous by the blood of Jesus. This man was furious with this message. And so he had filled his pockets with rocks and he was going to start throwing them at George Whitfield as he preached the gospel. And he writes this in his, in his journal. And uh, the man he says, said this. He says, I came to hear you with pockets full of stones to break your head, but God, through your preaching, has broken my heart. And as he walked forward, he began to loose the rocks out of his pocket as he went forward to receive new life in Christ. That's what the gospel does. It takes the hardness of our hearts and only by the grace of God softens us and changes us and molds us and shapes us. Notice how Paul says that we've been made alive together with Christ. Now, Paul's pointing out this union with Christ. This is a big deal. Uh, in fact, all three of these phrases that he's going to use, use the, have the word with. Alive together with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. We're seated with Christ. And so, church, Paul's wanting us to begin to examine our hearts. Are you with him? Are you united with Christ? Are you raised with him? Are you together with him? So God raised us up with Christ. This is a clear allusion to the resurrection of Jesus. What you were once enslaved to, all the things that, you, that, that bound you up, when God sent Christ and, and he, Jesus got out of the tomb 2,000 years ago, Paul's saying you and I got up with him in reality. So what you used to be a slave to, what you, you are not anymore because you've literally got out of the grave with Christ by his power. You don't have to follow the course of this world anymore. You don't have to follow the evil one. You don't have to carry out the desires of your flesh because you've been raised with Christ. The resurrection power that rose Jesus from the dead gave you new life and rose you from the dead. That's our reality forever. So with Christ, we're spiritually alive. The third thing as we see in move, moving through this, and finally, we see in verses 8 through 10 that in Christ, we are God's workmanship. Um, if you notice in this text and all over Ephesian, Ephesians, this, this appears all over the place. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, and in Christ, we are God's workmanship. Verses 8 and 9, Paul says, salvation is a gift that you did not earn. In verse 10, it says that this gift that you did not earn, that was graciously given to you because of Christ, has been given in your salvation, results in something. It results in good works. Now, it, it by no means says you are saved by your works. He couldn't be any more clear about that. But make no mistake, Paul says, 
that your salvation, the great free gift of grace that was given to you that was not free for Jesus, he gave his life for us, but is given freely to you, results in works. So if you have no works of the Spirit, he's, he's helping us evaluate our spiritual lives. If you don't long for the things of the kingdom of God, then Paul's saying you need to ask yourself, do you have salvation? Because when you have it, your heart longs for the things that he longs for. Your heart longs for the things that um, put a spotlight on the grace of God. Salvation 8 and 9, totally a gift of God. He could not be more clear. Listen to this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. You can't do it. You can't achieve it on your own. It's the gift of God that refers back to the entire salvation process. Even your faith is a gift. You didn't even muster up the faith to believe. God gave you faith to believe. So I hear this a lot. It is not this. It's not grace is what God does and faith is what I do. That's not how it works. When you read the book of Ephesians, when you read the Bible, it says that you needed to believe, but God granted to you faith. So that why? No one can boast. You can't take credit for it. You can't say, I did this, I, I, I discovered it, I found it, I was smarter, I was more clever, I was more brilliant, I, I uncovered the last and final stone. No, no one can boast. God fully did it all. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Your salvation is all grace. And God's great rescue of us is by grace. Think of the reversal that we just read through this entire section. He started off dead in trespasses and sins, now alive together with Christ. Sons of disobedience, now raised up as sons and daughters of Christ Jesus our Lord. Children of wrath, destined for a very dark and bleak future, now seated with Christ in glory because of the resurrection power. Recipients of generous mercy, recipients of the great love of God, recipients of the rich grace of God through Christ Jesus, recipients of God's kindness to us in salvation, not of your own doing, not a result of works, because salvation is a divine gift. It cannot be earned. Our moral efforts, our religious activity can't earn us a drop of it. So we weren't saved because we were smarter. We're saved by the work of God and his great grace and love poured out on us. No one can boast. But this grace that is just poured out onto you, this understanding of our salvation, this experience of the love of God, being a part of the family of God, results into something, verse 10, into good works. These are the fruit of our salvation. This is the byproduct of being attached to the vine as branches. Jesus says it this way, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. That's Jesus' words. We have a living faith. It's a functioning faith. It's not just an intellectual one. It produces something in the lives of his people. He's doing something. He's building for himself a new kind of reality, a new kind of people under the banner of the grace 
undeserved merit and grace and love of God, that we would now walk in it with each other and with those outside of even the faith. Because when they do that, verse 10, it says that when folks begin to see that, when you and I see that in one another, we display his workmanship. If he did all this and he did it in you, and he did it in me, we get to live it out so that now we are his workmanship. We're his handiwork. He wants to show the world who he is through how we walk in this life with each other and with those that even don't believe. Because in doing so, we might point to his good and glorious workmanship. It's another word, is, you could almost translate it craftsmanship. He did it. He crafted it. He built it. He formed us. He shaped us. He made us this way. And he wants to put us on display now that he might be made to be glorious and good and graceful and loving. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him, that we should walk in them rather. So Paul goes, from the beginning we were walking according to the patterns of this world and now we're walking in the good works prepared beforehand by our good Father. You were once just tossed around by the culture and by the whims of what was expected of you in reality by the prince of the power of the air. You just That's what you just did. Now he saved you from that. He's brought you out of that. He's given you salvation and life and a family and he's prepared for you a new way that you would walk in that way. And in doing so, you would shine brightly his goodness and mercy. It's all grace. It's all mercy. And it's all kindness. We can't take it on as ourselves, say we did it, but we point to him and his goodness. Do you know this grace? We're going to respond uh, this morning by taking the Lord's Supper. And we're just going to praise him. What we do when we take the Lord's Supper is we come, we're going to come forward. We're going to have some bread. And we, it, it's, a, it's symbolic. Jesus says, when you do this, as you gather, you remember my body that was given for you on the cross, his great work. And when you take the cup and you dip the bread in the cup and you eat the bread, you remember the blood of the new covenant, his blood that washed over us, that gave us salvation and gave us life. And so our response and application this morning is to just worship Jesus for all that he's done for his great work, that when we walk out of these doors now under the banner of his good work, knowing he's prepared for us something this week, today, to live out the realities of his glorious grace in our lives. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Um, Lord, for even these hard uh, statements, even for these things for us to grapple with and grasp, or we really like that. But Lord, thank you that you don't just leave us there, alienated and separated, that you in grace and love and kindness sent your only son to provide for us that which we could not provide on our own and could not do on our own. And that now under the banner of Christ, under his blood, the blood of the new covenant, we can be called sons and daughters. And God, I pray uh, this morning for maybe someone in here that has never received you, has never believed into you. God, I pray that your word may have sparked something in them, God. And God, I pray that if that has happened, 
If you've worked in the heart of someone by your good work, by your good grace and called someone out of darkness into light, that their very first response maybe this morning would be come and take the Lord's Supper and say, Lord Jesus, I recognize my great need for you, that I need your body, your substitutionary atonement on the cross, and I need your blood to cover me that I might be called the son or daughter of the Most High. And Lord, may we all walk in that reality and the good works that you've prepared for us this week, this month, this year. Soften our hearts. May we walk with you. In Christ's name, you come forward as you're ready to take the